Welcome to the Neil Seenson Book Club Podcast. My name is James Taylor. And I'm Marco Sparks. Hello, Marco. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Episode 8 of the show. We're talking about Snow Crash, chapters 36 through 40 today. Really uh, unleashing those those digital namshubs. This says some of my favorite Neil Stevenson writing. In it. Um, very much enjoyed these chapters. I don't know about you, but I was really vibing. Uh, yeah, so last time was very YT heavy. Mm-hmm. We're really going to get in there with Hero and YT's mom this time. Learn a little bit about Fedland. Yeah. Yeah. YT's mom. Um, chapter 36 starts out with like one of my favorite Neil Stevenson passages. I'm just going to read the whole thing or at least. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. You know, How could you until, not? Yeah. Until a man is 25, he still thinks every so often that under the right circumstances, he could be the baddest motherfucker in the world. If I moved to a martial arts monastery in China and studied real hard for 10 years, my family was wiped out by Colombian drug dealers and I swore myself to vengeance. If I got a fatal disease, had one year to live, devoted it to wiping out street crime. If I just dropped out and devoted my life to being bad. Hero used to feel that way too, but then he ran into Raven. In a way, this is liberating. He no longer has to worry about trying to be the baddest motherfucker in the world. The position is taken. Love it. He's glad to know that the only thing that puts him out of reach of being the baddest motherfucker in the world is a hydrogen bomb. That's the crowny touch. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe he, he can find that. Raven's Achilles heel, sneak up, get a drop, slip a Mickey, pull a fast one. But Raven's nuclear umbrella kind of puts the world title out of reach. But I like he's like, hey, maybe it's okay to know your limitations. Yeah. Um, so he's on the road on his motorcycle. Uh, once he gets past the mountains, he goggles into his office in the metaverse. As he um, rides bike... towards Oregon at 140 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yeah. This is a part in the book where I was just like, holy shit, this rules. Well, but like, I love it, this passage, this like self-reflective passage as he's just like, yeah, no, I'm not the baddest motherfucker in the world. <laughs> I'm the second baddest motherfucker in the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the CIC Earth thing is still up in the office. He like, looks at the raft there thinking of how it can't really navigate itself anymore, not with all the shit attached to it. He starts talking uh, about like the raft looks bigger than it is because of this like self-made slick slash cloud of sewage and air pollution kind of following it around. Yeah. Uh, it orbits the Pacific clockwise. As a couple of years ago, it was going by the Philippines, Vietnam, China, Siberia, picking up refuse, meaning refugees. Then it swung up the Aleutian chain down the Alaskan panhandle. And now it's gliding past a small town uh, of Port Sherman, Oregon, near the California border. So it's just kind of going in a little loop there. When it's like moving on ocean currents, um, occasionally parts of itself are shed and bits wash ashore, like in places like Santa Barbara with skeletons attached. Yeah, uh, that was particularly brutal. <laughs> Still lashed together, carrying a payload of skeletons and gnawed bones. Yeah. Uh, when it gets to California, it will shed more of itself and some of the refugees will go ashore. Uh, these refugees are going to be badasses. And from the book, we say, we hear tough enough not to get killed by any of the other refuse. Nice guys, all of them. Just the kind of people you'd like to have showing up on your private beach in groups of a few thousand, which is like a real, like the real caravan. You know what I mean? That we were, we were threatened with. Yeah. And he has uh, this analogy of army ants here. Army ants cross mighty rivers by climbing on top of each other and clustering together into a little ball that floats. Many of them fall off and sink. And naturally, the ants on the bottom have all drowned. The ones who are quick and vigorous enough to keep clawing their way to the top survive. And so that like that's that's what you're getting from these refugees. Uh just the the most resourceful uh and like, you know, like yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Um fierce of the refugees are the ones who make it. 
Hmm. And they're getting all dumped into California. And I, I suppose you could read this as like a, oh, scary immigrant type of uh, analogy. But like, we already know that um, L. Bob Reif is like doing this to kind of like feed biomass into America. It's like America yeah. is just going to chew these people up and spit them out. It like needs them to like propel. It's like, you know, hyper capitalist dystopia, basically. Mm hmm. Yeah, so once once it sheds all that weight, the enterprise will continue through the South Pacific to Indonesia to start a whole new migration cycle. Uh, and just does that every couple of years, yeah. Yeah, for the last few years, owners of the beachfront property in California have been hiring more security personnel or getting more security tech and subscribing to CIC's 24-hour raft report to keep track of this shit. Um, Hero starts talking to the librarian and mentions that he's on the road doing incredible speeds. The librarian can tell him about the jackknife truck south of Santa Clarita and the the large clunk hole in the left lane near the Tulare exit. So he's like, um, he's like on the grapevine right now, basically. So how how long has he actually been on the road? If he's doing 140 miles, that, right, he said get in the mountains. I mean, he's basically like just past like Burbank, you know, okay. like 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 you know, 10 or 15 miles north of there. Um, I don't remember where where the bike place was, where the motorcycle place was. The motorcycle place. Oh, yeah, it, it was in L.A. somewhere. Okay. I mean, it must have been, yeah. I just I, I have this weird feeling that he's been like on the road for like fifteen minutes. Uh, no, like, no, he, like a couple time. hours at most, I would think. Okay. Um, um yeah, so Hero asked if Lagos had any theories as to who these gods actually were. And Lagos apparently thought that they were either magicians that being human beings of being humans of power, or they were aliens. And so here asked for clarification on the first part, and the librarian points out that the Namshub of Enki, if it worked as a linguistic virus, that's beyond the norm of most regular people. Yeah, uh, assume that someone named Enki invented it, then Enki must have had some kind of hyperlinguistic power that goes beyond our concept of normal. Uh, so we uh, learned a little bit about the uh, the Kabbalists. Kabbalists. Uh, what? This is the the thing that took over Hollywood for yeah, yeah, five years. Studying uh, the Kabbalists. Who use a so-called archangel alphabet derived from first century Greek and Aramaic uh, therugic alphabets, uh, which resembled cuneiform. The Kabbalists referred to this alphabet as eye writing because the letters were composed of lines and small circles, which resembled eyes. And here it says ones and zeros. Okay, so there's that binary again coming into things. Well, and so it's funny, it's like earlier in that he's just like talking about the practical Kabbalists were trying to apply the power of the Kabbalah in everyday life. And he's just like, in other words, sorcerers. Yeah. So we learned um, that uh, these theories that Lagos tried to apply to is like virus hypotheses are kind of two, two schools of thought. There's relativists and universalists. Uh, and someone named George Steiner summarized it. Relativists tend to believe that language is not the vehicle of thought, but is its determining medium. It is the framework of cognition our perception of everything are organized by the flux of sensations passing over that framework. Hence, the study of the evolution of language is the study of the evolution of the human mind itself. Mm -hmm. And here it says, okay, I can see the significance about what about the universalists? Uh, so in contrast to the relativists who believe that languages need not have anything in common with each other, universalists believe that if you can analyze languages enough, you can find that all of them have certain traits in common. Uh, so they're analyzing languages looking for such traits, even though they haven't been able to find them. It's like, for whatever reason, all these languages, like they keep, branching off and they're different from each other they can't find like the common thing even though universalists think it's there well they believe that's because the shared traits are just too buried to analyze yeah according uh, to universalists french and english and uh, any other language must share certain traits that have their roots in the deep structures of the human brain yeah uh there's the mention that all human brains are the same to which hero adds that the hardware is the same but not the software and the librarian's just like i can't comment on that metaphor <laughs> 
Yeah, um, so Lagos believed that both schools of thought, the relativist and universalist, had essentially arrived at the same place with different lines of reasoning. And Lagos uh, modified the strict uh, Chomskyan theory by supposing that a learning language is like blowing code into PROMs, uh, and that an analogy that I cannot interpret. So Hero can interpret that uh, PROM mm-hmm. is a programmable read-only memory chip. He says when they come from the factory, they have no content. Once and only once, you can place information into those chips and then freeze it. The information, the software, becomes frozen under the chip. It transmutes into hardware. Uh, after you've blown code into the PROMs, you can read it out, but you can't write to them anymore. So Lagos is trying to say that the newborn human brain has no structure, as a relativist would have it, and that the child learns a language, the developing brain structure itself. Accordingly, the, the language gets blown into the hardware and becomes a permanent part of the brain's deep structures, as the universalist would have it. So if Enki was a normal dude, then he knew the relationship between the language and the brain and knew how to manipulate it, just as a hacker knows the secrets of the computer and can manipulate it, digital namshubs. So Hero wonders why no one is doing this today, why there are no English namshubs. Librarian points out that not all languages, the same Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Chinese lead themselves to wordplay and have a lasting grip on reality. Sumerian was an extraordinary, powerful language, at least as it was in Sumer 5,000 years ago, a language that lent itself to Enki's neuro-linguistic hacking. So I find it interesting that um, the the PROM analogy there, it's like, oh, you, you blow code into like hardware once and it becomes, or yeah, hardware and it becomes permanent. Um, the human brain is actually more malleable than that. You know, like they've like done studies where somebody has like an injury to part of their brain and like another part of the brain takes over doing that job, you know? And so yeah. if one could say it's, it's like a, computer chip except you can blow new language into it and possibly you know like you can't put new programming into that chip um if you know the right way to do it so maybe that's what inky could do with his neurolinguistic hacking yeah i mean just the idea of just this primitive hacking of the human mind is fucking fascinating well the idea that they were they used to speak a language that would made them more susceptible to it yeah a, a powerful language which also had great weakness in this regard mm-hmm. and to think that we had to wait 5,000 years to have technologies that lent itself to metaphors yeah. about what Enki was on, doing. On that like the human brain was like fun. The people were fundamentally different back then the way they thought in ways that like us modern humans can't really comprehend. It just seems like weird and alien to us you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, Hero calls it the machine language of the world. Yeah, so here I have to explain that computers speak machine language, all ones and zeros on binary code. At the lowest levels, all computers are programmed with it. And he says, when you program a machine language, you are controlling the computer at its brainstem, the root of its existence. But it's difficult to work a machine language because after a while, after a while on such a minute level, so a whole babble of computer languages have been you know, created for programmers, Fortran, Basic, COBOL, Lisp, Pascal, C, Prolog, Forth. You talk to the computer in one of those languages and a piece of software called a compiler converts it to machine language. You can never tell exactly what the compiler is doing. It doesn't always come out the way you want, like a dusty pane on a, or a warped mirror. A really advanced hacker comes to understand the true inner workings of the machine, sees through the language he's working with, and glimpses the secret function of the binary code, calls a, a Baoshem of sorts. Yeah, and there's also this mention of the tongue of Eden, which is uh, the Kabbalists believe that like God created the world by speaking a word. You know, it's like naming something is the same thing as creating it. Well, and, that, and that's basically. I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, obviously, but that's mm. the whole, that's, I, I know that Christians like to think that like Christianity is, is completely original. And obviously this book is 
rightfully positing that's not so much but like that's kind of the thing in genesis is that that is the act of creation you just speak it you know mm-hmm. i said there was light and thus there was yeah uh, so lagos believed that the legends about the tongues of eden were exaggerated versions of true events these legends reflect nostalgia for a time when people spoke sumerian tongue that's Sumer- superior to anything that came afterwards i uh, basically yeah. suspected that the words worked differently in those days so here i ask if sumerian was really all that great you know, we're told not as far as modern linguists can tell, mm-hmm. but language worked differently back then because of how it worked. It was ideal for creation and propagation of viruses, and those viruses could spread rapidly and virently in the Sumerian language. So here he knew that Enki, or here he thinks that Enki knew that, and perhaps Babel was the best thing that ever happened to us. Yeah, maybe the Namcha of Enki wasn't such a bad thing. Maybe it was something done purposely to prevent the spread of viruses, I think is what we're driving at here. That yeah. Inky realized that the the metavirus was in danger of infecting humanity, and pronounced some sort of namchub to basically alter people's brains to make them less susceptible to it. So, chapter thirty seven, we're really going to dive into government work and bureaucracy. I, this is I I love this stuff. I this is one of those chapters where like if you're not in on Neil Stevenson, it's going to be like what the hell am I reading? But if you are in on him, just like the subtle humor is just great. Yeah, because so, we're going to find all about Fedland where Whitey's mom works. Uh, and it <laughs> mentions that she parks her car in a little numbered slot for which the feds require her to pay about 10% of her salary. Otherwise, she could just take a taxi or walk. Most of the spaces, uh, the good spaces closer to surface are reserved for people other than her, but empty. I feel like the but empty is crucial here. This this whole thing, it's it's funny that this is describing the federal government. Like, I feel like there's one way you could read this as kind of being like anti-government and whatnot, but like what they're really describing is just the most soulless corporation you've ever heard of that has the power of the government, you know, yeah. like is yeah. the, the way everything operates in Fedland, it's like clearly been like, like the not privatized per se, but like the, the kind of the ethos of privatization has like had a profound effect on the, on the, the way they operate. All right, so having worked for the federal government, for a while, I can tell you that they are absolutely obsessed with the fetishistic nature of corporate business culture. Mm-hmm. Like, there are so many managers who work in today's Fedland who have those fucking six sigma, sigma business oh, yeah. books, or just the sheer number of the fucking like uh, Gilbert business books that oh, I would see yeah. on people's shelves, which is especially egregious now. Scott Adams, yeah, yeah. But um, so we're with her as she goes back to the the Ebgok building. Uh, they have a right to do a county search if they want. She got county searched every day for a month once, right after she had spoken up in a meeting and suggested that her supervisor might be on the wrong track with a major programming project. So, like, it's obviously punitive and vicious, you know? It's like, they will fuck you if you question their authority at all. Yeah. But you're just expected to take it. Yeah, if you're patriotic and want this job, you gotta put up some bullshit. As you climb the GS ladder, you put up with less. Her boss, Marietta, isn't high on the GS ladder, but she has access. She has connections. Marietta knows people who know people. Marietta has attended cocktail parties that were almost attended by some people who, well, your eyes would bug out. And we mentioned she's going up the stairs, even in her like work outfit. The elevators here still work, but some very high, high, highly placed people in Fedland have let it be known. Nothing official. But they have ways of letting this stuff out that it is a duty to conserve energy. Yeah. Uh, so the stairwells are filled with sweaty wool and clacking leather. If you took the elevator... No one would actually say anything, but it would be noticed, noticed and written down and taken into account. People look at you, glance you up and down, uh, like, what happened? Sprain your ankle? Which is interesting because some of it honestly feels like it's it's also covering up the fact that the Fedland is broke. 
Could be. Yeah. Doing, yeah. They, they seem very penny pinching. Cheap. Yeah. The mm-hmm. toilet paper memo, especially. Seems like they can't afford toilet paper. Yeah, so she goes to her office, which has a bunch of computer stations and a grid. There used to be cubicle dividers, but they didn't like that, Ebgok. Uh, What if there was a need for an evacuation, they would say. All those partitions would impede the free flow of unhinged panic. Yeah, they love they love turning your own safety and individuality against you. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also like the idea that you would do anything at work but use your computer, where your bosses and coworkers keep track of you. Do it at home on your own free time. But there's no paper in Fed Office. So all the workstations are the same. You just come in and sit down at one. Typically, you come in and you get the one that's closest to the door and unoccupied, so that eventually those who are sitting farthest from the door are clearly not having their shit together because they got there later. So everyone just kind of knows, you know, who they can go whisper about in bathrooms who's having problems. Um, I like the line where she says, uh, Fed workers like military people are intended to be interchangeable parts. So this is through YT's mom's perspective. I assume that this is like her editorializing in a way. It's it's like part her and part Stevenson, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know. So when I worked for the government, we would we would constantly make the joke when we were when we were done with a project, good enough for government work, mm-hmm. which of course started off as this like proud, it's almost your, patriotic yeah. thing. Like we're doing work that's good enough for government work, and now it's like fuck it, I'm done. Yeah, you're only uh, required to be at your workstation from eight to five with a half hour lunch break and two ten minute coffee breaks. But if you stuck to that schedule, it would definitely be noticed. Which is why YT's mom is sliding into the first unoccupied workstation and signing onto her machine at a quarter to seven. Jesus Christ. She's there an hour and 15 minutes early. Yeah. Uh, she signs into her work email and finds a new message from Marietta, basically telling the employees to use less toilet paper per transaction. Uh, oh, we, we, we got to go into this. I'm sorry. I love this. This Please. memo is like pure Stevenson, just like channeling like psychotic bureaucracy. It's, I mean, really step aside, Scott Adams. Like this is how it's done. Like, What's funny is, is I'm just I'm just picturing like three years from now when we devote a whole episode to Captain Crunch and yes. Captain Omicron. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the new TP pool regulations. A single one-time exception has now been made for any office that wishes to pursue a joint bathroom tissue strategy. Um, so we learn all about like the necessity of you know bathroom tissue. And says for this reason, rather than trying to package bathroom tissue into small one-transaction packets, as done as is done with pre-moistened towels, for example which can be wasteful in some cases and limiting others has been the traditional to package this product in bulk distribution units whose size exceeds the maximum amount of squares that any individual could conceivably use in a single transaction barring force majeure. Meaning you're not going to use a whole roll of toilet paper when you take a shit. <laughs> I just love the, the absolute corporate speak of what we're talking about here. It's, it's beautiful. Can't spare um, square. Yeah. Since the implementation of phase, uh, what is that, 17 of the austerity program, employees have been allowed to bring their own bathroom tissue from home. This approach is somewhat bulky and redundant as every worker usually brings their own role. Some offices have attempted to meet this challenge by instituting a bathroom tissue pool. So the, these like little pools at work are like illegal and outlawed. Like you're not supposed to do this, but they're making this exception for bathroom tissue. Yeah. Um. What I love is that uh, after with this, though, there is a uh, an average reading time to the memo. You know, if you read the yes. new procedures manual, uh, employees are now allowed to bring their own roles. Um, so also something about, you know, um, when you donate to the pools, they have to be an official U.S. government currency. No Yang or Kong bucks. Also, something about folks trying to dump their old billion or trillion dollar Well, yeah, bills. yeah, no, let me, let me get to this because I just got to read this out. I'm sorry. But first of all, also scented uh, tissue papers, not allowed. This is my cause of allergic reaction. Now, because they have to pay in U.S. currency, no comic books. 
So naturally, this will lead to a bulk problem if people try to use the donation bucket as a dumping ground for bundles of old billion and trillion dollar bills. The buildings and grounds people are worried about waste disposal problems and the potential fire hazard that may ensue if large piles of billions and trillions begin to mount up. Therefore, a key feature of the new regulation is that the donation bucket must be emptied every day, more often if an excessive buildup situation is seen to develop. In this vein, the B&G people would also like me to point out that many of you who may have excess U.S. currency uh, uh, may try to get uh, rid of it by trying to kill two birds with one stone by using the old billions as bathroom tissue. While creative, this pro- approach has two drawbacks. Number one, it clauses the plumbing. Number two, it constitutes defacement of U.S. currency, which is a federal crime. Don't do it. So basically, don't wipe your ass with the U.S. currency because it's it's like literally worth less than toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, she talks about picking up each memo to read in the timeless for its appropriate. Uh, later, she's still working at when she's still working at home at 9 p.m. You know, from home, she'll think about the actual metric for employees. If it's supposed to take 15 minutes, then that means if you spend less than 10 minutes, it's time for an employee conference, a possible attitude counseling. <laughs> you spend 10 to 14 minutes, keep an eye on this employee, maybe developing a slipshod attitude. 14 to 15.61 minutes. Employees, an efficient worker, may sometimes miss important details. Exactly 15.62 minutes, which is the time you're supposed to spend reading this. <laughs> Smartass, needs attitude counseling. I love that. I love the 15.63 to 16 minutes. Asswipe, not to be trusted. 16 to 18 minutes. Employees, a methodical worker, may sometimes get hung up on the minor details. More than 18 minutes. Check the security videotape. See what this employee was up to, e.g. a possible unauthorized restroom break. What I love about this is there's no category in there where it's like you were a good employee. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) good job. It's like you can't win. Like no matter what you do, you read too fast, too slow, or like exactly on the number, you're still like dinged in some way for it. Yeah. This um, is just like psychotic, like Brazil shit. I love it. Yeah. Um, so oh. yeah, why does mom decide to spend 14 to 15, between 14 and 15 minutes reading the memo? It's better for younger workers to spend too long to show that they're careful, not cocky. It's better for older workers to go a little fast to show good management potential. She's pushing 40. She scans the document, hitting the page down button at reasonably regular intervals, occasionally paging back up to pretend to reread some earlier section. The computer's going to notice all this. It approves of rereading. It's a small thing, but over a decade or so, this stuff really shows up in your work habits. Over summary. a decade. <laughs> Holy shit. This just makes you think of like, I, I've never had to deal with this in my job, but like in some like work from home stuff, you have to like install software on your computer that basically tracks every fucking keystroke and whatnot. Oh, and they watch oh. all that. Yeah. That's fucking sick. So we learned that um, she she's a applications programmer. In the old days, she would have written computer programs for a living. Nowadays, she writes fragments of computer programs. And it's like they, they kind of chop the work up in these tiny little bits. So nobody really knows who's doing what. Uh, every day when she signs on, there's a stack of memos waiting for her containing new regulations and changes to the rules that they all have to follow when writing code for the project. These regulations make the business with the bathroom tissue seem as simple and elegant as the Ten Commandments. So, like, it's like her bosses, like, they figure out how to break this, like, computer project, you know, program project into smaller and smaller little bite-sized tasks. And they're, like, constantly changing their mind up, you know, up and above. And so it's like that all filters down. Uh, so she... You know, like says uh, she reads, you know, the new regulations until like 11 or something. And then she starts going back over all the code she's previously written for the project and making a list of all the stuff that will have to be rewritten in order to make it compatible with the new specifications. Basically, she's going to have to rewrite all of her material from the ground up for the third time in as many months. But hey, it's a job. 
Yeah. Uh, and she has to make these changes because it's a Monday because Marietta and her supervisor spent the whole weekend upstairs having a cat fight about this project changing everything. And then uh, at about 1130, she looks up startled to see that a half dozen people are standing around a workstation. There's Marietta and a proctor and some mail feds and Leon, the polygraph man. Uh, she says, I just had mine on Thursday. Time for another one. Marietta says, come on, let's get the show on the road. Hands out where I can see them. The proctor says, so she's in trouble. So, I mean, like, Marietta sounds dreadful. Like she mm-hmm. seems like she's a corporate drone who's just like who has no life if she's in yeah, there on the yeah. weekends. Yeah, even her cocktail parties where you, people who are there who are so big you bug your eyes out. It's work, but it's like the what she gets off on is clearly the power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, chapter thirty-eight. Uh, Oiti's mom walks away from her desk. No one looks up from their desk. They're not supposed to, as part of the rules. Well, and there's this whole thing where like um yt's mom has to like go to the bathroom followed by a proctor the proctor like watches her as she like squats and pisses into a pan and like every drop of her piss is collected to be like tested as the pro the proctor's watching all of that like taking the pan and like emptying it all new test tube like just like the, the absolute like dehumanization you know and the humiliation yeah. of it uh so then they get in the elevator which you are allowed to use if you're on your way to the polygraph so that you won't show up there out of breath and sweaty uh, the room they used to have a, her with something. Yeah. So the room used to have a standard polygraph machine. It's now more high tech and natural, like a hospital single chair in the middle. She sits with a blood pressure cuff, goes around her arm, injected of something, which includes caffeine to make her more talkative. Yeah. It says this is not a normal polygraph exam. It's something special. She can feel oh, like she- burning through her body or like her heart's thumping and her eyes are watering. So much for getting any work done today. Sometimes these things can go on for 12 hours. Jesus Christ. They and like, are basic- you getting paid for that? Probably not, you know? Yeah, really. You're maybe maybe to five. And then told yeah. that you're behind yeah, on, yeah. Your, on your programming. Uh, so they ask her basic questions like, what is your name? Have you ever been to Scotland? And is white bread more expensive than wheat bread? Baseline questions. They read to her coldly and stripped of emotional content. So she never knows how it's going. Well, there's this line here I want to read. Uh, she hates these things, but it happens to everyone from time to time. When you work for the feds, you sign on the dotted line and give permission for it. In a way, it's a mark of pride and honor. Everyone who works for the feds has their heart in it. Because if they didn't, it would come out as plain as day when it's their turn to sit in this chair. Yeah. Um, so after they've been asking her lots of nonsense, uh, they'll ask her, uh, what is your daughter's nickname? YT. How do you refer to your daughter? I call her by her nickname, YT. She kind of insists on it. So we still don't know YT's real name. I'm not sure if we ever find out. Um I like how they ask her how often does uh, YT purchase new equipment for a job. And she says, I'm not aware. I don't really keep track of that. Has YT done anything unusual lately? So we're, we're starting to narrow in a little bit. Yeah. yeah. That What's what's her job? She's a career for Radix. Yeah, she broke into the house recently. Mom gives up since she knows the house is bugged and tapped. She says, yes, that YT broke her computer at home. She tells them that YT was afraid of a virus, but one that only affects programmers. And they ask if she believes YT's story. And they realize that that's the real question they have. They want to tap into her unique knowledge of her daughter. See if this is real. Well, they, the, that's the one thing they can't tap directly into is what's going on in this person's mind. What's going on in YT's mom's mind? It's They've got all this data about her. You know, they've like just violations of privacy left and right. But they can't literally know what she's thinking. They need to know whether or not she believes YT's virus story. Only they could split her brain in half where there's the work half <laughs> and the home half. Yeah, the really. TV show. See, it, uh, all, it all comes back to Snow Crash, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like they all these scanners, they can tell now that something's going on in her brain. She's using parts of her brain right now that she didn't use when they're asking the nonsense questions. So in other words, they can tell that she's analyzing the situation, trying to figure them out. And she wouldn't be doing that unless she wanted to hide something. 
And so she says, what is it you want to know? Why don't you just come out and ask me directly? Let's talk about this face to face. Just sit down together in a room like adults and talk about it. And instead, she feels another prick in her arm. She feels numbness and coldness spreading all across her body. And uh, it's going to be harder to follow the conversation. And they ask her again, what is your name? So bad times. Which is a great way to cut off because we're not going to get her name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, the, the fact that she's like, stops being a, a government drone and becomes a person. I mean, this is like Orwellian nightmare shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's so, it really calls to mind the stuff from El Bob Rife, like being mad about his workers, like having information that they, you know, they didn't pay for and then being able to take that information home with them. It's like the feds too seem to want to control their employees' brains at well, a level that's just like impractical and invasive well like like the librarian said that your eyes and your optic nerve is the first part of your brain mm-hmm. and anything that the the elbow brife employees witnessed even if they don't understand it how dare they yeah carry that in their brain even some well, and how level. dare you have thoughts that you're not willing to share with your employee or right. employer you know it's like they they deserve to know everything about you yeah you're because you signed stealing, on the dotted line you're stealing that ip yeah mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so chapter thirty nine, the the Alcan, the Alaskan Highway. It's the world's longest franchise ghetto, a one dimensional city of two thousand miles long and a hundred feet wide, and growing at the rate of hundred miles a year. As quickly as people can drive up to the edge of the wilderness and park their their bogos, bagos, bagos. Um, uh, those are basically the Winnebagos, and yeah. the next available slot is the only way out of, out for people who want to leave America but don't have access to an airplane or a ship. I feel like Stevenson is a little obsessed with this like long city idea. I feel like that he yeah. that there's like one of those in um in what was it Termination Shock, his last book that mm. just came out. There's like a similar type of situation there. Mm. Uh, but yeah, he's he, so he's talking about the the Alcan here, and like there's all these kind of feeder areas into it um, somewhere in the middle of like British Columbia. But he says um, this 500 mile swath of territory is filled with would be Arctic explorers and great wheeled houses, optimistically northbound and more than a few rejects who have abandoned their bagos in the North country and hitched a ride back down South. So like there's the Alcan, which is like this long ass, like, you know, city ghetto that's very narrow. But then below that is a swath of land where it's like, everything's feeding to the Alcan, like, and like, basically northwestern canada yeah i guess it just reminded me that someday i want to take an alaskan cruise yeah all these beefy caucasians with guns <laughs> get enough of them together looking for the america they always believe they grow up in and they'll glom together like overcooked rice form integral starchy little units with their power tools portable generators weapons four-wheel drive vehicles and personal computers they're like beavers hyped up on crystal meth manic engineers without a blueprint chewing through the wilderness building things and abandoning them altering the flow of mighty rivers and then moving on because the place ain't what it used to be. Yeah. The byproduct of this lifestyle is polluter rivers, greenhouse effects, spouse abuse, televangelists, and serial killers. In 20 years, 10 million white people will converge on the North Pole and park their bagos there. The low-grade waste heat of their thermodynamically intense lifestyle will return the crystalline ice skate pliable and treacherous. It will melt a hole through the polar ice cap and all that metal will sink to the bottom, sucking the biomass down with it. This is such a bleak depiction of this but, like kind of migration of humanity. Nothing is more accurate. Than no, that it's yeah. what's amazing it's, to me is he's writing this back in 92. I feel like in not all of his books, but in his books that like are more recognizably, I guess the, the ones that are not in the past, I would, I guess I would say like when they're kind of like semi relatable to like current times and whatnot, 
he has mm-hmm. a way of just seeing this like bleak eventuality of like where current civilization is going that is just unmatched. Like I, I just like reading this at Starbucks and just like, you kind of just like stop and lean back and look out the window and you're like, fuck man. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, yeah, this is probably all going to happen or something close to it. We're just, we're on the Titanic right now. Yeah. I mean, again, sci-fi writers, they gravitate between prediction, but mostly extrapolation. And honestly, he's, he's pinballing at a perfect score. here. I mean, uh, every, every time he does this in one of his books, he just nails it so perfectly. Like an anathem, the way he describes the people with their, like their, their G jaws, you know, like their cell phones and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I love it. When in the Dodge, uh, was it, um, fall Dodge and hell, like, He's describing going to like a Maristan and that at one point, like yeah. just like the bleakness of like basically the red states gone crazy. I remember reading the the initial description of Anathem with the talking about mm-hmm. the, the G jaws and everything, and I remember just thinking like, oh, this is Stevenson in his like you know angry man phase, angry at the culture. Um, and, and, and he's way too way that, clear-eyed to just be angry, though. You know? Well, but I mean, like in a way that I think a lot of you had, like your Aaron Sorkins were sure, angry sure. at the current state of the culture. And then I'm reading the book, and I'm like, "Fuck, he's not wrong." He's, and then you get he the, just the like, beauty of like the monk of the internet. But I feel like he there's even though he, what he's describing is very bleak, he also seems to kind of understand kind of like the human condition enough to like explain why people do this, and it doesn't yeah. like it. It's like it seems like a rational response to you know a person's surroundings and them trying to survive you know it's like well this is probably what would happen it may not be ideal you know in any way this may not be how we want humanity to live but like given these conditions these um you know pressures are going to like you know put them in this situation honestly i i feel like the last author who really was this kind of pressure about the modern era was maybe orwell you know, I've only I've I've only read two of his books, so Well, I look at things now like, you know, this this insane rash of of book bannings and library closures across the country. And the 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 fucking quote from from nineteen eighty four haunts mm-hmm. me, the those who control the past control the future. Yeah. You know, if we can erase the things we don't like about our history, they never happened. Um so Hero ends up at the Snooze and Cruise. I like how he describes it like the Snooze and Cruise used to have like kind of like a campground theme. But yeah. people kept on chopping up the um, like the signage and whatnot, and using it to, for cooking fires. So now it's like this, like you know, all polycarbonate bubble type style. Yeah. So 16 hours outside of California, uh, several hundred miles north of the raft. There's a guy here he wants to interview. As so kind of a, I think we can assume he's been driving for 16 hours, right? This is I got mentioned. This is 16 hours outside of California, so he's probably been. I mean, no, you would get there. You would you would be there already. So I I feel like this is he's been on the road for sixteen hours. Okay. Um, So there's kind of campsite there. The canopy, what used to be a grass covered lot, it's truckloads of sand mingled with litter, broken glass, and human waste. He's looking for Chuck Wrightson, Mister President, the former president of the Temporary Republic of was it Kenai and Kodiak? Yeah, Um, yeah. This Temporary Republic here, which um, it sounds like it's somewhere. In Canada, like a like a small area of Canada, it's like a, a self-proclaimed like state that they weren't able to hold on to. Yeah, terrified of Raven. Uh, it's basically a, a futuristic homeless shelter. Oh yeah, because the first thing he says is, "Who is that, Raven?" Like he's terrified. Yeah. 
Yeah. Everything looks like it would look on a cruise ship, nailed down, brightly lit up, 24 hours a day, all the personnel behind glass barriers. Security, this thing has, a, has at this town hall provided by the enforcers, steroid addicts and black armor gel outfits. <laughs> so they go to the little pub and like... So the pub is out. called Kelly's Tap. I'm not sure what that, if anything, is a reference to you, but that's the name, this yeah. pub here. I like this uh, line. Of, it always seems to be ruled by a, that small percentage of the human population that is capable of partying until five in the morning every single night. And that has no other function. Yeah. Here is a picture of the pub special mixed half and half of near beer. The guy was uh, president of T-R-O-K-K, T-Rock for two years. So considered himself president of the government in exile. And Hero does his best not to roll his eyes. <laughs> Chuck seems to notice. Yeah. Country is taken over by what he calls his orthos, Russian orthodoxes, mostly consisting of Native Americans converted by the Russians hundreds of years ago. They like I said, wanna... the says, I mean, the only thing that first us out, uh, the only way those maniacs were able to seize power was just totally, you know, he doesn't seem to have words for it. How could you have expected something like that? <laughs> they didn't want a constitutional democracy or a czar. They were outcasts from the Russian orthodoxy or heretics, which is how the Russians say heretics. Yeah, this is who took over T Rock. Uh, they uh, are all Pentecostals. I think that's important that uh, these guys are not Russian Orthodox. They're Pentecostals who are yeah. known to speak in tongues. They're yeah. somehow tied in with the Reverend Wayne's Pearly Gates. So another connection there. And uh, missionaries from Texas were coming up to meet with them all the time and speaking in tongues. There were 100,000 Americans in T-Rock. And then suddenly 50,000 Orthos showed up. One morning they parked an airstream in the middle of Government Square, took the wheels off, put out a proclamation in Russian telling the others to vacate. Inside the thing was was a Grove, a, K, a former KGB general turned religious fanatic. And inside, he's got a 10 megaton hydrogen bomb, a city buster. Oh, shit. So these guys just there. There was this like kind of like, I don't know, new state formed of 100,000 people like doing their own thing up in Kodiak there. And then these Russian orthos, you know, really Pentecost, uh, they showed up and just like parked a nuclear bomb in the middle. And were like, we're in charge now. Yeah. Just go the, away. The, the simplest terrorist act. It's just the idea yeah. that they took the wheels off. So you're not getting this thing out of there easily. So they got it from a Russian sub. The captain was going to bury his weapons in the Marianas Trench. The Samuel decided to use his sub to help a bunch of orthos to escape Alaska. And the fact that they keep calling them orthos when we've just heard that they're Pentecostals. Is yeah. So funny. it's like this captain, the Russian sub. He's, I guess it's like the Soviet Union has collapsed. He's in control of a nuclear submarine. He thinks maybe, you know, people shouldn't have access to the nuclear submarine. So he's going to ditch this thing in the Marianas Trench. Uh, but somehow he's persuaded first to use the submarine to help a bunch of orthos escape to Alaska. So he's going to pick up a bunch of refugees and like on the Bering Coast and like bring them over to Alaska. Big mistake. Uh, Big mistake. This. Captain of the sub was a security nut, you know, as one should be as the captain of a nuclear sub. <laughs> so he agreed to let some of the refugees aboard, but he had like metal detectors they had to go through first. Apparently, this is where Raven comes in the yeah, story. Yeah, metal detectors. They don't pick up an, his knives. Yeah, because he's an Alouette who's got uh, got aboard the sub with other refugees. He's an Alouette. I think it's Alouette. Alouette whale killer. And the Alouettes can paddle out in their kayaks, catch a wave. They can outrun a steamship, you know, Chuck says. Anyway, Raven went on one of these refugee camps and passed himself off as a Siberian tribesman. You can't tell some of those Siberians apart from our Indians. The Earthworms apparently had some Confederates in these camps who bumped Raven up to the head of the line, so he got on the submarine. You know, what about the metal detectors? Useless against Raven. He has glass knives, chips them out of plate glass, the sharpest blades in the universe. Only a single molecule wide doctors use them for surgery. Yeah, I love this little exchange up above here where he says, well, Raven got into the nuclear submarine. And here it says, oh, my God, he got over to the Siberian coast of the mouth, probably surfed across on his fucking kayak. Surfed? That's how the Alouettes get between islands. 
to Ravens and Alouette. And he just like got in the kayak and fucking surfed over to the coast. Yeah. Uh, here says that kind of knife would be sharp enough to go through bulletproof fabric, I guess. Chuck writes in size. I lost track of the number of people Ravens snuffed who are wearing bulletproof fabric. Uh, yeah. Hero assumed that it was high-tech laser knife. Nope. Glass knife. He had one on board the submarine. Either smuggled it on board with him or else found a chunk of glass on the submarine and chipped it out himself. So very resourceful. Doesn't even necessarily need to be carrying it with him. If he can just get his hands on glass, he can make it. And uh, Chuck a gets molecule this wide. Molecule wide blade. Yeah. The, what they use to do like eye surgery. So Chuck yeah. gets a thousand yards there, takes another slug of beer. On a sub, you know, there's no place for things to drain to. The survivors claim that the blood was knee-deep all through the submarine. Raven just killed everyone, everyone except the Orthos, a skeleton crew, and some other refuse who were able to barricade themselves in little compartments around the ship, the survivors say. Jesus the Christ. Say was, just the survivors say it was quite blood. a yeah. yeah. Raven forced them to steer the sub off the anchorage of Kodiak, uh, or off Kodiak. They had a crew ready. The Orphos did. Uh, the Orphos did. Ex-Navy men who had worked on nuke subs before. X-rays, they called them. So I wonder, this sub probably has more than one nuke on it, right? Like, they probably have, yeah. like, a shit ton of warheads. So. Well, so so they had one in the middle of town, or as, mm-hmm. as he says, one of the warheads in our, in our goddamn front yard. Presumably, this is where Raven gets his, that he carries yeah, around. Yeah, but there must be more out there. Yeah, yeah, think. yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we've got nuclear power that's associated with these orthos, who are also associated with Reverend Wayne's Pearly Gates who is owned by L. Bob Reif. So that all doesn't bode well. I just remember reading this article in Cinescape Magazine about uh, Goldeneye, mm-hmm. about how when the when the Iron Curtain came down, they felt like they had so much plot that they could thrust and like bond into. Because number one, you had like 10,000, yeah, yeah. you know, like assassins who were now unleashed into private contractors. And then every fucking storyline was about like people stealing nuclear bombs. Yeah. Like, like holding the world hostage. Rogue warlords and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Hero feels a light tap on his shoulder. Excuse me, sir. A man is saying, Pardon me for just a second. Oh, no. Some shit's about to come down because in chapter 40, Hero turns to see this big, fat white guy. His slick back hair, and he's got a tattoo and block letters across his forehead. We know why they tattoo those guys. It says mood swings, racially insensitive. And boy, is he. Yeah. Uh, he says, this guy here is like, what's good? What's up? And this guy says, well, sir, I'm sorry to disturb you in the middle of your conversation with the gentleman here. But me and my friends are just wondering, are you a lazy, shiftless, watermelon-eating, black-ass slur that I'm not going to repeat? Or a sneaky little VD-inflected also slur I'm not going to repeat? And the man reaches up, pulls the brim of his hat down, and we can see that it's a uh, a Confederate flag printed on it. It's New South Africa Franchulet, number 153. So some shithead racist has decided to pick a fight with yeah. Hero here. Yeah. It's like, Hero's just talking to this dude, you know, but nope, these guys, they they want to come start trouble. Yeah, bunch of fucking shit kickers, yeah. So Chuck's, Chuck's disappeared. Chuck has <laughs> conveniently vanished, so Hero ends up standing with his back comfortably to the wall, looking out over the bar. Sudden phalanx of Confederate flags and sideburns have joined this one porky pig. There are a lot of town halls and a lot of snooze and cruise franchises where you have to check your weapons at the entrance. This is not one of them. Here isn't sure if this is a good or bad. I like he says, uh, let's see, is that some kind of trick question? Yeah. So, Hero is bulletproof up through his neck, but that just means the new South Africans will be sh- uh, going for the headshot. They pride themselves on their marksmanship. It's a fetish with them. Yeah. Uh, and then, so this guy, after a little bit of talking, uh, Hero's like, you know, why don't you just kind of fuck off? You know, like, what do you want? And he says, there is one problem with New South Africa. 
don't mean to sound unpatriotic, but it's true. And here it says, what's that problem? And he says, there's no, you know, slur, slur, slur there to beat the shit out of. And here it says, ah, that is a problem. Thank you. For what? For announcing your intentions and giving me the right to do this. Then Hero cuts his head off. Cuts his fucking head off. I remember reading this for the first time. I mean, like my my two reactions is like, holy shit, fuck yeah. yeah <laughs> like it's yeah. just like it's like so out of nowhere, like wow, that escalated quickly. And also, fuck this guy. I'm glad he cut his head off. Yeah. Honestly, like as we're going through this, there's no reason you can't do this as like a 10 episode. Oh, this can you imagine show. this scene in a TV show would fucking fuck rule, yeah. dude? Fuck yeah. Um, well, just the way this like hero is just like, well, if you're in New South Africa is so fucking great, like, why don't you just go there? And he's like, well, we still need, you know, minorities to beat the shit out yeah. of basically. Yeah. So he leaves at the guys. Uh, he's surprised that he got lucky of his dude's head and must have gone through the vertebrae. He's thinking about the difference between metaverse fighting and real swordcraft, especially when it's swords interacting with human bodies. This headless body is just spraying blood apparently like love, it's fucking like it's fucking kill bill i love these descriptions also i like this note where he says um uh this is the kind of thing that's going to happen about every 10 seconds when he's on the raft so it's like he'd better get used to this yeah um, but yeah so he's flying backwards that the man is when the decapitation occurs uh which is good because half his blood supply comes lofting out of the top of his neck twin jets from each carter and hero doesn't get a drop on himself uh, so the other NSA guys are like like trying to decide what to do. They want to laugh, take a picture, run away, call an ambulance. Here runs outside. He gets to the lurid main avenue of Town Hall. There's the enforcers. They make the average Metacop look like Ranger Rick. Uh, Before we get to the enforcers, I just love this. Uh, he says, for an astonishing long time, he just stands there and looks at the guy's body. And there's like this description of like the blood is like now dripping down from the ceiling and like a wino sitting there nursing a double shot of vodka shakes and shivers staring into his glass with the galactic swirls of trillion blood blood cells dying in the ethanol. So, yeah, when he gets to the the see the enforcers, it, we get the passage gargoyle time here switches our everything or everything on infrared millimeter wave radar ambient sound processing. The infrared doesn't do much in these circumstances, but the radar picks out all the weapons, highlights some of the enforcers hands, identifies them by make model ammunition type. They're all fully automatic. The enforcers and the new South Africans don't need radar to see heroes katana with blood and spinal fluid running down the blade. And then the music of Vitaly Chernobyl and the meltdowns is blasting through bad sneakers all around him. It is the first single to hit Billboard charts entitled My Heart is a Smoking Hole in the Crowd. I just can't, I can just totally picture this like in a TV show or something where like, you know, that song we've heard before starts like jamming on the radio. Yeah, here yeah. like got this blood dripping katana and there's like this, you know, decapitated body and everyone's like pulling their weapons on him and shit. Like this would just be the, such a great scene. For the most part, the way we've broken down the uh, the the chapters would mm-hmm. almost be how I would do the thing. Or maybe do I, the, chapters the one tricky stuff 10. would be the librarian stuff, making sure it's cinematic enough that it's not boring, you yeah. know. But I, I mean, mean like you could do like flashbacks and infographs and whatnot. But like this, this chapter is a great last scene to an mm-hmm. episode, you know, the episode where you're just like, fuck, I need the next episode to come immediately. Uh, so here it feels out of his element. He's shot in the back by machine gun fire. Which well, I like this or- when he says Adam Zellman, he says he doesn't belong here, lost in the biomass. If there's any justice, he could jump into those speakers and trace up the wires like a digital sylph, uh, follow the grid back to L.A. where he belongs there on top of the world where everything comes from um, by a Vitalia drink and crawl into his futon. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, then he gets like shot in the back by a machine gun. 
Bruises organs pretty severely and hurts bad. His sensors tell him that they're about to use the loogie gun, which they didn't use in the first place, which is protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this great, this great line. You can't just carry a sword around as an empty threat. You shouldn't draw it or keep it drawn unless you intend to kill someone. Hero runs towards the enforcer, raising the katana to strike. The enforcer does the proper thing, namely gets the hell out of the way. The silver ribbon of the katana shines up above the crowd. It attracts enforcers and repels everyone else. So as Hero runs down the center of town hall, he has no one in front of him and many dark, shiny creatures behind him. Yes, I like it. He turns off all the techno shit in his goggles. All it does is confuse him. So like he had this like brief moment of like I'm going to be a cyberpunk god and then he's like actually yeah. this is confusing as fuck like I can't handle all this information you yeah. know so he stands there reading statistics about his own death even as it's happening around him very postmodern time to get immersed in reality like all the people around him yeah enforcers don't usually fire their guns in their crowd unless it's point blank range or they're pissed but they're firing a few loogies at him now they're missing and hitting the bystanders wrapping them in sticky gossamer veils yeah bad things and good things are happening in quick succession the next bad thing happens when a steel grate falls down to block the doors what the hell it's an inflatable building so here it like turns on his radar basically like finds the uh you know like the weak spot or whatever and just like cuts right through it Past, past the window full of terminally bored prostitutes. There's a line, I think we passed it somewhere in here, where it's like one, like during all this chaos, like a couple of the, uh, the bystanders like managed to like grab their beers and pull them back as he's like <laughs> running past them. Uh, but yeah, here uh, it fakes towards a whorehouse then cuts directly towards an exposed section of the wall. Uh, but he cuts right through it and then he uh, gets on his motorcycle. The new South Africans get into their all-terrain pickups. The enforcers get into their slick black enforcer mobiles and they all go screaming out onto the highway. And after that, it's just the chase scene. I like how he writes it like that. <laughs> Fuck yeah. God, I could totally see this as the end of an episode. It's like yeah. you just see like fucking 50 cars like hauling ass after him, yeah. you know, and it's like credits. Yeah. Oh shit, man. Episode four of the show is fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the end of the chapter. I mean, we really went out on a high note here. This is like probably one of my favorite sections of this book. I think uh, we just get a lot of fun stuff with Fedland and then with Hero here. Yeah. And I think we're we're starting to see some connections. Like who's whose site? Like obviously, it's like the General Lee's. uh, Not General. Is no Mister Lee's Greater Hong Kong. And um, the mafia and like insecurity, they're all kind of like they're not like one faction, but they're kind of like on one side, I guess you could say. They're they're aligned yeah. for the moment. Yeah. What's well, interesting? So you have the mafia, mm-hmm. you have whatever the fuck one need is doing, but they're seemingly while they may not work together, they're they're simpatico. They, they have shared interests, which is yeah. basically just like free will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. And then like drifting way behind everyone else is the government. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the, I mean the, way the, the way the feds want control sounds very similar to El Bob Rife to me. True. And true. so then, and then you have El Bob Rife, Reverend Wayne's Pearly Gates, the fall of Ballas, you know, um, all those guys seem connected. And then of course you've just got like the shit kickers, like the new South Africans. Yeah. I don't know if they really care one or the other aside from just like being awful, but, but they can easily fall in with Reverend Wayne. And El yeah. Bob they they but, would seem more of a natural fit there than with the mafia. I guess the way I interpreted the, the bit with the end of YT's mom is that their intelligence is so bad that they've heard chatter about this, this virus that affects programmers and they're having to ask a human asset. Is it real? See, that's not how I read it. 
Okay. I read it as them being concerned that the mom might actually believe it. Okay. Okay. I, I don't think that they want to know whether or not it's real. They want to know whether the mom thinks it's real. Okay. Because if she thinks it's real, she might become disloyal mm. or might not want to do her job the way they want her to. Um, well, oh, and but, we also but, should mention that the Alouettes and the Orthos and their fucking like nuclear bombs too. Those are all on the, uh, the bad side there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But aligned with probably aligned with El Bob Rife. Yeah, probably. and the raft and all that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I like that. Essentially, all of these players though have recognized Hero and YT as major players in this game. Somehow they've found themselves in the middle of all this shit that's going yeah. down. Yeah. Well, I mean, like at least I all mean, because Hero couldn't deliver a pizza on time. Yeah, I mean, Hero is definitely recognized because um, he had the initial attack on him or the the overture from from Raven outside the Black Sun. Is that related to the pizza, or is he just is it just a prominent hacker or a hacker in general? I guess I would assume that he's a well known hacker, and okay. they've been trying to infect the hackers. It seems like the the one lady from Griffith Park. Yeah. Um, she was a hacker. It, it's like they, when they infect them, they get like, they, then they can like use them as like blood bags basically right, right. in a way that they can't use. Like, like when she goes to the Reverend Wayne's and like the, the, the one pastor and his like receptionists are like getting high. Presumably they can't like use those guys as blood bags. They need no, no, hackers for that. They're getting high off hacker. They're blood, getting the yeah. blood serum that can only be made by right. people. It's like not everyone can be infected with this metavirus. Uh, in the same way, I guess. But it, but it seems like Elbob like Rife Snow Crash like needs some like hackers to infect to to really right. be be able to propagate itself because the way their their minds work, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it seems like Elbob Rife obviously he had a lot of in house hackers, so he converted them first, and then it seems like outside of that, he's they're going after prominent hackers, yeah. Hence, well, like David, and like there was a mention of him basically like owning SETI, right? The search director, trust yeah, yeah. so like. Has he somehow received um, a, a transmission of the metavirus or something like that? Like picked up Good some question. sort of alien metavirus and is using that? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like that could be because uh, in, in one of these chapters, it mentions how like maybe it's aliens, you know, wow. um, instead of like magicians. Because they're because, yeah, because they'd have to have extraordinary powers. They're mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah. All right. Well, we're over halfway through now. A little over halfway. Just zooming. Mm-hmm. Got some we're fun going stuff. 140 ahead. miles an hour, folks. Yeah. Fuck yeah. This would just be so much fun as a TV show. I mean, obviously, you'd have to do some tweaks, but I, I really, I don't know. I would love to try to adapt something like this just because I feel like it'd be a, a good opportunity to, I don't know. I feel like a lot of adaptations these days, it's like, the writers are looking for like how they can put their own shit into somebody else's work, which I'm not a huge fan of. No. Like to me, the the a good adaptation is really like how can you distill all the necessary parts to a different medium while still like retaining you know the flavor and the tone and and everything you loved about the original material. Well, which is interesting because I I just this weekend finally finished the first season of Sandman, mm-hmm. which it's kind of that X Men '90s thing where like there's parts of it that are not as strong as it could be, but I'm so happy it exists. Hmm. There's some obviously changes that they made because of the time period and, and, and the TV medium that I don't have a problem with. There's some great casting. There are some changes that I just, I, it's like, 
I feel like you're working for Netflix. You're so worried about, you know, your price tag and are you going to get another season? Mm-hmm. Like, can you do some three seasons? But like some of the, some of the changes, it's like, you don't trust the audience. Well, it's like that, that why the last man TV show, they attempted so many changes, just so, unnecessary. so toothless and lame. It's like, why even bother making the show? You know, well, clearly, clearly an example, like you said, of somebody has some different ideas. Mm-hmm. And they they want to do a slightly different show, or like the Witcher show, which like there's parts of it I certainly enjoy, but it, like it's very clear that the the showrunner is obsessed with the Yennefer character, mm-hmm. and so she's like forcing that character to like take over all these other plot lines that are are different characters' plot lines, and it just mm-hmm. you just end up feeling like, hey, like are you sure you were the right person to adapt this if you don't seem to actually like the material that much, except for this one character, you know? Yeah. Well, like uh, you know. Peter Jackson hating the hobbits. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm I'm a very picky person in general when it comes to adaptations. I just feel like your attitude should not be, hey, I'm gonna make this better for TV. Your attitude should be, I love this thing and I'm gonna do everything I can to like transmute it to television yeah. and lose as little as possible. You know? Yeah. Like what, if, what if the- you're like, well, I'm just gonna fix all this stuff in the meantime, it's like, are you sure that that's really are you the right person for the job if that's kind of how you're approaching it? Yeah, like how, how your question should be: How can you service it, and how can you amplify it? Mm-hmm. You know, in the correct ways. And I don't know. Yeah. So next time, uh, forty-one through forty-five. Forty-one through forty-five. Thanks for listening, everyone. By the way, I don't think we've uh, announced this yet on the pod, but as we record this, in two weeks we will have uh, our third book dropping. It's called Trouble Takes a Holiday. Drops September 29th. You can pre-order it on Kindle now. Uh, and there'll be hardcover and paperback versions available on September 29th, so, uh, 2022. So if you'd like to read something, it's nothing at all like Snow Crash. It's just like kind of like a, a fun teen murder mystery. Go to mynameistrouble.com. You can check out the series there. Book three of that series is coming out. We're very excited about it. Technically, if you get it as an ebook, it's a digital NAM shop. Sure. There you go. The NAM shop of trouble. Mm-hmm. All right. All take right. it easy. Bye. Bye.